You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 94 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Setsonkin, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash library pros. Consider leaving a review or telling someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Thomas Shaw, Associate Director, Digital Innovation and Research Services at Lancaster University in Lanc- Lancashire? Lancashire, England. So Thomas has written an article entitled How to Strive for Success, Happiness, Fulfillment, and Impact, a Personal Manifesto, a scholarly journal article that discusses many of the things we all hear in our heads during the workday and during our careers. We're going to speak with Thomas about the reboot when starting a new role, imposter syndrome, being outward looking, keeping an eye on the future, diminishing fear to develop more trust in your abilities, and so much more. But first, let's get to know our guest. So thanks for agreeing to be on with us on on the podcast and speak about your article. We'd be remiss if we didn't give another big thank you to the one and only Rob Thompson, State Manager New South Wales for Alia, for sharing this article with us. Rob is such a big influencer on this podcast, I can't even stand it anymore. So tell us about your background and, and where you work. Sure. Well, it's a, a, it's a pleasure to, to be here today, and thank you for, for inviting me on. Um, so I, I work for the, uh, the library at Lancaster University uh, in, the, in the northwest of England, and I'm, I'm one of the, the associate directors there in the library. Um, I have a, a background very much in libraries, so I've worked in libraries since, um, since 1998, um, mostly in academic libraries. So uh, started off with the, the University of Bristol uh, in the, the southwest of England. And um, prior to joining Lancaster, I worked in, in London for the, the University of East London, um, but also worked for, for a few years for the NHS, for the, the health service in, in England um, as, as well. So um, predominantly academic libraries, um, but very much, um, you know, libraries being uh, you know, a big part of my life and, uh, you know, a huge part of my, my professional life. Tom, it seems from your title that you're doing some of the things that we're doing at our libraries. So being involved with technology. Uh, even though you're at university level, there are so many commonalities between educational librarianship and public librarianship. So tell us a little bit about the digital innovation and research services and what it entails. Sure. So, um, I mean, technology is a very big part of, of what I do and, uh, you know, a big theme that, that really kind of runs through, uh, you know, my role and my, my professional life. So um, the role that I have um, at Lancaster is um, – it's kind of split into two halves. So, um, you know, half of that is digital innovation. So, um, you know, it's really working on the um, the systems and the software um, that we use that, that underpin and power uh, everything that like does essentially. Um, so, working on things like our uh, our library management system, um, e-resource e-resource authentication, um, our institutional open access repository, um, are, are the kind of things that that my team and I work on. Um, but we're, we're very fortunate at Lancaster to have a small um, team of developers who are, are based in the library. And um, it enables us to, to do quite a lot to, to use technology in, in more innovative ways. So we're able to um, develop our own systems from the ground up. So where, where there isn't a you know, commercial offering um, for, for a system that we, we require, where you know, we're able to, um, you know, in some cases, build things from the ground up but also increasingly to look at how we can um, connect different systems together, um, how we can use APIs to integrate different systems to, um, you know, to allow data to flow between different systems, to allow different systems to talk to each other uh, in increasingly uh, increasingly powerful ways. So um, that's the digital innovation uh, side of my role. Um, there's also research services, which is it's really very much around the, the increasing ways in which the library is um, playing a very major role for the university in underpinning its academic research um, and, and the kind of research that our, our researchers are, are doing. So, um, you know, it covers areas like open access. So um, allowing our researchers to make their research publications available open access. 
Um, it covers uh, you know, a range of activity around research data. So working with our researchers around how they um, how they manage and archive um, their, uh, the, 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 the raw data that's generated in the, in the course of their research. And then also uh, a lot of activity increasingly around what we've termed research intelligence. So it's really things like um, bibliometrics, citation analysis, um, alternative metrics, looking at the kind of data that's generated through publication and citation and usage activity and um, really looking at the kind of insight that, that can that can tell us about the impact of, of academic research and increasingly it's it's kind of very much a growth area for us so we're increasingly working with academics to um, you know in, in partnership with them um, starting to look at ways of collaborating on research bids with academics and also just opened uh, in a, a new extension to our library a, a couple of spaces that are um, you know very much dedicated to academic research so um, a lot of activity going on on that side too. Wow it sounds like you have a really big team. It's um, it's about 10 altogether. So um, it's not a huge team, but they are all um, individual roles uh, specializing in, in, in particular areas. Um, so we've got we've got a lot going on, um, but it's a, yeah, it's a great team to work with. And we're um, yeah, doing some some great things. I'm, I'm interested in wondering, how did you did you build the team from the ground up or was it kind of there when you when you got in the position you're in now? It was. It was kind of there, so um, the, the the team was already in place. It wasn't wasn't something I, I kind of built from from scratch as, as such. But um, I've been uh, been at Lancaster for three years now, um, and there's been a certain amount of, of change in in colleagues as colleagues have left, and um, you know I've I've recruited new people. So um, it's presented some opportunities to kind of rethink different roles and to to do certain things slightly differently. So I guess I'd say I've you know I've, I've kind of led and evolved the team rather than than kind of building it from the from the ground up, so to speak. I know one of the things that we innovated in the wake of the pandemic at my library was making our tech mobile and then going paperless in our department. What tech that you have there at Lancaster really makes you smile right now? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. So uh, one of those is we, we've recently launched a, a new digital library um, called Lancaster Digital Collections. And um, that's a, a primarily a, a basically a digital library for image collections. Um, something that we were working on for quite some time, and particularly during the during the pandemic, it was one of our, our big priorities. But it's great to have finally launched that. It's uh, it's a collaboration with the University of Cambridge, so it's an instance of a digital library platform that they developed some some years ago at Cambridge. Manchester University uh, a couple of years back launched Manchester Digital Collections, and we're coming along now after them and, and have recently launched Lancaster Digital Collections. So it's great to be able to to do that, and it's a it's really a platform for a couple of key purposes. So, so one of those to, to be able to share um, our archive material, our unique and distinctive collections that were were kind of locked away, really. Um, you know, and, unless people were able to come to the campus at Lancaster, um, able to book in. You know, it was it was quite challenging uh, otherwise for for people to, to be able to get to see uh, the material that we have. Whereas now, the you know the whole world can see it twenty four seven, and you know it's out there in you know really high resolution images. You can zoom right in, but it's also a you know it's a platform for collaborating with the researchers. So increasingly, we're working with researchers who are generating you know images and image collections through the course of their research and it will it will increasingly provide a home for those kind of, of collections as well so that's one of the big pieces of tech um, that, that I've been been doing a lot of work on um, with with my team recently I guess the other thing is probably not the most exciting choice but I have to say Microsoft teams so it's you know it, it's been revolutionary for us uh, in, in terms of the way that we're able to work um, we, we couldn't have got through the pandemic without it. Um, we we introduced it. I guess we we kind of must have known somehow. We we introduced it a few months before um, the the start of the pandemic in in early. Um, yes, yeah, so we introduced it. Must have been the the kind of last few months of 2019. Um, we were using it for you know collaborating on projects and things like that initially. And then when the pandemic hit, we we kind of thought, hey, you can do video calling with this, and you can do instant chat with this. And actually, this is really useful, isn't it? And the you know the video calling actually works, unlike you know, certain other video calling platforms that I won't name that have always been a bit of a, um, you know, thing, a certain one that begins with S and ends in E. Um, <laughs> the, 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 my experience has not, not been the greatest, but um, it actually worked and it, it absolutely, you know, it got us through um, the last 18 months. So 
not the most exciting choice in in some ways, but yeah, it's it, it's it's been absolutely invaluable for us recently. You know, Chris, you can write this down. You'll never hear me say it again. But Microsoft didn't get enough credit for Teams. It actually works really well. It didn't have this, the early on security concerns that other other you know companies did. Like like uh, that rhymes with boom. You know, they had big security concerns. <laughs> no, they don't get enough credit for Teams. It works. It does work. It certainly overheats phones and mobile devices because of its its uh, you know ability. And you know, it's one thing also when you're talking about like for us going paperless. It's so funny how some you can have the same concept, but using different pieces of software to get to the same end result. And I think that's something that, you know, whether you're using Teams or um, or Google or Trello or Slack or whatever, whatever your your poison is at the end of the day, when it works, administration wants to pay for it, which is always a big, big help. The idea, especially in. If you're in the technology end of libraries, the idea of having paper invoices and paper forms and things like that for, you know, patrons or students to to use to, to interact with you versus, you know, pulling out an iPad or a phone and being able to submit things digitally. Uh, it, I think it makes all the difference in the world and it shows how progressive we can be and how not stuck in the past we can be as libraries, whether it's academic or or public or even a special library. Yeah, it kind of uh, feels like one of the, uh, the the greatest secrets in the world, almost the way in which libraries are, you know, so much at the forefront of technology. Um, you know, great stuff that libraries are doing all the way around the world. And um, you know, if you you kind of take the the perception that so many people have of libraries still being about you know buildings with books in them and technology not really you know having much of a place in that, uh, you know, the, the reality you know so so different to, to to the way that so many people still you know perceive what what a library is and what a what a library does. Exactly. Exactly. You know, what's so nice about Microsoft is they're very open to education. So, you know, whether you're a public library, or academic library, um, they don't have the paywalls that you run up against that you're running into right now, Chris, with with Google. Um, you know, they're they're like, oh, yeah, library in your name. Go for it. Have 5000 seats, you know, use whatever you want. So it's it, it's really nice to see that. I mean, we even we just put in for Office 365 and all the the benefits outside of TechSoup, you know, which is an organization that that handles the the um, donations for Microsoft and other big companies. Um, And then they just give it to you quickly within a couple of days. Okay. So we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to return and have a chat with Thomas about the concepts in his article, how to strive success, happiness, fulfillment, and impact. And we'll be right back. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book, Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. And we're back with Thomas Shaw, the Associate Director, Digital Innovation Research Services at Lancaster University, Lancashire, England. Okay, so before we get to the nuts and bolts of this brilliant article, we have to ask you what inspired you to write the piece, and how did you climb into most of our heads and know what we were thinking? Uh, well, I, I guess the, the first thing I'd say is that I'm, I'm genuinely, I'm so heartened and, and, and really touched that it's it's resonated with, with so many people. And um, I was aware when I submitted it for publication, it was a, perhaps a bit of an unusual choice for uh, you know, a professional article like this. And, I really wasn't sure how it was going to go down, what what kind of reaction it was it was going to get, and um, you know the day it was published, I um, you know posted it on on LinkedIn and Twitter, and uh, you know I was, was kind of thinking um, you know it's it might get a few likes from the, the usual people who kind of like my my posts, but probably not much more than that. And I I was I was really bowled over by you know the amount of engagement that it's it's got, um, you know the way in which you know library directors in the UK um, you know saying this is great, I'm I'm going to use this 
professionally in our you know our planning work that we're, we're doing i'm going to encourage others to, to read it and you know re- really really heartened by the um you know the response it's it's had um you know through to the invitation to to appear with, with you guys today and to uh, to be on the on the podcast today um and in terms of kind of how it came about i kind of started with when i started my role three years ago at lancaster that, that sort of initial first few weeks when, you know, all these things occurring to me about, um, you know, I, I must remember this or I, I mustn't forget, you know, kind of thinking about this or, you know, framing this in, in, in this particular way. And I, I just started to write some notes to myself, basically. But, you know, initially it was about making sure I didn't forget things. And over time, it kind of just organically built up into what I eventually called a personal manifesto, I was just thinking, well, what is, you know, what is this thing I've kind of, you know, I've kind of created um, sort of organically. Um, and, you know, so I, so I had that and, um, you know, I'd, I'd shared that with a, with a couple of people. And then I was talking to my manager one day and, and I was saying, well, you know, I've, I've not, not written anything for publication for some time, but, you know, I'd really like to, to do more of that. And um, he's the chair of an organisation in the, the UK called UKSG, which is a um, basically a, the sort of sister organisation of NASIG in the, in the United States. And um, they have an open access journal called Insights. And he said, you know, I can email the editor. I can say you're interested in writing an article. Um, and he did as we were as we were speaking. So I then thought, right, OK, well, what on earth am I actually going to write this on? And, you know, tried a couple of things and, you know, wasn't really sure where I was going. And then suddenly thought, you know, hang on, there's the, the personal manifesto. There's this thing I've, I've written. I wonder if I could turn that into an article. Um, and that's really the backstory to it. That's kind of what, how, how I come to be here today, really. Well, I'm glad you did because it, it, it is mind-blowing. Uh, and we're going to talk about those those parts next. It was just as it, when Rob had sent it to me, I'm like, oh, let's see, take a look at this. And right, right from the word go, it's a personal manifesto. So I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. And it was like leaping off the page at me. So, so I guess let's get into it, right? very well done so so sometimes library professionals change positions either within an organization or even move on to another organization Uh, it kind of affords the chance of a psychological reboot like a fresh start but with the benefit of having the experiences of the previous positions Um, so can you explain a little bit more about that reboot concept yeah sure i mean i've um I've changed um, changed organization and, and changed role uh, in libraries uh, you know a number of times and each time it's it's been quite an enriching experience so um, you know very much come in with the you know the kind of fresh pair of eyes scenario um, you know challenged by and also inspired by you know the new things that you experience um, in that role the new people that you meet the new challenges that you you might be faced with so it's something I personally have found, um, yeah, it's been, been quite quite an enriching kind of experience, this idea of, um, you know, it, it, it's a reboot each time. Uh, you're not just kind of seamlessly coasting from one to another. You're, you're psychologically, in some senses, starting again, but also starting again um, with with a lot of material, uh, a lot of experience that you can draw on from from what you've done, uh, what you've done previously. And I guess it's something I've, I've kind of, sort of expanded into more everyday working so uh, you know the, the kind of idea that you you don't necessarily have to change roles to to, to be able to to reboot in that, that sense that you can you can kind of decide to do it anytime you like really you can uh, you know if if there's if there's something i'm finding challenging at work for instance i you know i might get to the point after a while where i think right okay i'm you know i'm going to accept this as challenging but i'm going to stop just just sitting here struggling about it and, and thinking, you know, what, what on earth can I do? And actually kind of look at this in a more focused, a more, um, a more practical way um, and, and a, more, a more kind of solution focused way. So um, I guess there's always that ability to, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether a, a micro reboot could be, a, could be a thing that you could kind of decide to do uh, anytime that you're, you're faced with something challenging. But um, yeah, de- definitely something that's been, been quite a feature of my, my professional life. And, you know, when I was reading it, too, I also interpreted it as it's almost a psychological reboot where you get to reset when you're when you leave and go to a new a new um, library. You almost get an identity change. You can change your own mindset. Um, You can uh, kind of break yourself of the habits that you had at at the other place, Um, even break yourself of like negative culture, the feeling of negative culture and, you know, really just rebooting and almost reinventing yourself in the profession would you would, do you agree with that 
Definitely, definitely. And I, I think the, you know, the, the point that you made there about culture, um, I, I think is really important that way that every organization has, you know, it has a culture, it has that is, you know, often subtly different. And, um, you know, I think there's a, there's an opportunity to perhaps try and take what was best about all the things that you most liked about the culture of the previous organization um, with you to the new organization where, um, you know, you can't, you can't change a culture overnight, but there are, you know, there are little incremental things or subtle things that you can do that might help to just kind of shift and tweak the, the, the culture uh, a little bit. So um, I think being conscious of the, of the different cultures and, and thinking about the, the kind of things that you can do, um, you know, both to to kind of reinvent yourself, but also the things that you you, know, you might be able to do to have an impact on, on the culture um, in, in the new role, in the, in the new place where you work, I think is, is, is really important too. And, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about is something that I know just about all of us suffer from, and that's imposter syndrome. You know, it's a real thing. It's something that, that we all experience from time to time, some of us more than others. And, you know, I think that most of us in this profession have experienced it in one way, shape, or form in the past. So can you explain the mindset of imposter syndrome and how do you think it can be overcome? Because so many of us, especially when we're tasked with a new role or give it a promotion or transition to another organization where you're in a, a role that maybe you're one step higher than you were before. You're thinking to yourself, do these people know what they're getting themselves into? This is just me here. Yeah. I think to, to, to me, it's, it's a really valuable term for, for understanding something uh, like, like you say, uh, understanding something that, you know, probably almost all of us um, in, you know, who, who work in libraries and, and in, you know, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, most other sectors as well. Uh, you know, do do experience, even if people don't let on, even if they don't, uh, you know, they, they don't share that fact. So th there's kind of a couple of elements to it to, to me. I think one of those is the the way in which it's it's very easy to look at everybody else and think they're all doing great things and I'm not doing great things or I'm, I'm not doing as much of those great things as, as all those people over there are doing. And, um, you know, I, I find that, you know, if I go to a conference or something, um, there can sometimes be an element of that. Um, you know, you kind of look at all these people presenting about these amazing new initiatives and projects and it's all wonderful. And you kind of think, well, where, where am I in all of this? What have I, what have I done? Um, I think there's a, there's another component to it that um, a number of colleagues I've, I've worked with over the years have, um, you know, spoken about and in, in, in some cases have written about very, very powerfully. Um, this kind of idea of just feeling like you don't belong in, in, in the sector that you work in. So, um, you know, I can think of one or two colleagues who um, came from, uh, I guess, a background that we describe as as working class in the in the UK. Um, perhaps uh, you know, sort of blue collar type backgrounds. Uh, you know, you might say in the in the US with, you know, parents who didn't go to college or university. Um, you know, parents who were not supportive of the idea of um, of, of their child going on to to work in. Um, what they saw as a kind of white collar professional environment and um, you know a couple of colleagues who have kind of found things very challenging because of that just just feeling like they, they kind of don't um, you know they don't belong in that kind of environment don't feel comfortable uh, in in that kind of environment so I, I think it's it's a really valuable concept I think in terms of understanding um, some of these things um, but in, in terms of what you can do about it so um, I think Kind of acknowledging it is is really valuable. I think that's that's really important as a as a way to try to tackle that. Um, sharing it and, and and talking about it with others, I think, is also also really important. And you know, if people feel comfortable to to talk openly um, about their experiences, uh, I think that's that's really valuable. And you know, particularly you know, sharing that with peers, um, working with mentors is is something that I found really valuable as a a way of of, of helping me to reflect on my abilities to, to have as, as positive a, a view as possible of, of, you know, what I'm doing and my, my own abilities. And I guess as, as part of that, trying to just trying to separate out your perception of things versus as far as possible, the kind of reality of things and thinking about, you know, is, is this actually, you know, looking at it as objectively as I can, is this actually how things are? Um, or is this just my perception of how things are that may be clouded by, um, you know, some of, of how I'm, I'm, I'm feeling about things? And I guess a, a, another thing to say as well is, you know, it's kind of the, the last point that I make in the, in the article is, um, you know, to, to, to give ourselves a break, basically. Um, so, you know, I think 
people who work in libraries are, are often because we you know we tend to be in it for really good reasons we want to make a real difference to people to, to people's lives um they, they, i think that can sometimes feed into you know us putting ourselves under a lot of pressure um you know us wanting to be you know perhaps a bit perfectionist at, at times and i think there are you know allowing ourselves the, the freedom to say you know sometimes it's okay for things to be good enough and um, and also to you know just, just to try to think about uh you know the great stuff that we are doing uh, recognizing the great things that we are all doing and that you know probably most of us most of the time are actually doing better at work than we think we are that we we tend to kind of dwell on the negatives dwell on what we see as the, as the weaknesses um and yeah i think that's the that's the kind of message I'd end on really is, uh, you know, it's okay to give ourselves a break from time to time. Well, I think part of it too is understanding your own real value, not the value that you place on yourself, but what your actual worth is to to the organization, to your colleagues. And a lot of people have a hard time doing that because there's a certain amount of, especially in our profession, there's a certain amount of humility that goes to what we do. And, in terms of like what you're saying, going to a conference, you know, you feel like you're standing amongst all these beautiful Christmas trees and you're the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Yeah. You know, there, there's always that feeling too. Um, and, you know, it, it's like standing amongst giants. That was the one thing that I wrote down that, that just popped out at me. You know, when you are at a conference or you are, you know, with other colleagues that are doing it and have been doing it for a while and now you're there and you're trying to run alongside them and do the things they're doing and their opinion of you is that you're doing great too and you're doing amazing things and they idolize and, and envy some of the things you're doing. And you're just like, well, that's just something I do. I don't do what you do. So, you know, it it really is something, it, it's probably one of the hardest things in this profession to overcome. Yeah, it's de- de- definitely something that I've I've experienced with, you know, m- many, many colleagues I've worked with. And uh, as you say, there's there's often that element of humility, um, you know, particularly amongst us, you know, uh, you know, us people who work in, in libraries and many colleagues I've worked with who they they just don't recognize, um, you know, how great they are at what they do. They don't recognize their, their own achievements. Um, uh, exactly. As they, they, they just kind of see it as well. It's just kind of what I do um, without recognizing and celebrating the value and, and the impact of, of, of what they do um so yeah i think it is a it's a real challenge um but i think one i'm i'm really keen that we we talk about and that we we share and um you know something i have tried to do more is to um you know to kind of be honest and open about um you know times when you know i've perhaps made a mistake or uh you know some of my kind of faults and, and weaknesses r- rather than presenting this facade of um of being perfect um you know that way that you know everybody has weaknesses and things we're less good at and that's that's fine and you know hopefully there's an element of that that can help other people to um you know to kind of work with um you know either weaknesses that they have or, or perceptions of, of what they see as weaknesses that may actually not be weaknesses at all. They may be, you know, totally uh, undervaluing and under underselling themselves. I'm just thinking of how, how this works in technology too, like the technology that's available in libraries now, right from the, the wood engravers and things like that, that Chris has at Sagem down to the public computers have become a utility and the patrons that are looking to use them in academic or, or public libraries are expecting them to work when they walk in. You know, it's not like we can just turn the switch off and it doesn't work and that's acceptable. So it can be very frustrating for frontline staff and for the technologists behind, you know, how, how it runs, um, having that over their head that at any given time, you know, as, certainly as managers, um, the gremlins can come out and, and kind of destroy what, what everybody's, uh, you know, worked so hard to provide. Um, and it seems like there's less and less patience for when things are down, uh, especially with the with the pandemic. You know, gosh, things had to work. And especially now recovering from the pandemic, you know, people get really aggravated even when the, the printer's out of paper. Something so small just seems to set people off because they're already living on the edge because of everything they've just been through. So the services that we provide now are almost, uh, you know, increasingly more important that we keep them up and running and keep them fluid and keep them, you know, going. So. You probably experienced some of that, Chris, right? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. And if you're the manager of this stuff, you don't really have time off. I mean, you you can punch a clock all you want, but in the end, um, when when it hits the fan, you have to you have to get it working. Which is great. It leads right into our next uh, question. So, so Tom, it seems like there's a trap that so many can fall into in this profession, um, becoming lethargic 
uh, apathy all plays a role, punching a clock and sitting at a desk and then the slippery slope down to disliking your job. Um, but you talk about the concept of being intellectually engaged. So having that fulfillment can really make a huge difference and keep someone from falling down that slippery slope. So talk a little bit about what your definition of an intellectual engagement means and why it's so crucial to the profession. Sure. I mean, it's something that when, uh, you know, when I was initially making the, the notes that, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, formed into the, um, the personal manifesto, um, it, it was the first thing I, I, I noted down. Um, you know, I felt it was, it was really important for me to, um, you know, ju- just to be kind of conscious in and engaged in um, thinking about what I was doing at work and, you know, particularly um, not just coasting along, but, you know, always thinking about, you know, what else can we do? What new stuff can we do? Um, you know, what existing stuff can we do better? Um, you know, always pushing myself and challenging myself to, to keep thinking about that. Um, I guess it's it's kind of linked with, um, I suppose, in in a you know in in a wider sense in the in the wider world. Um, you know, the kind of I suppose the interest that, that I have in um, you know just learning about the world, understanding the world, um, and there's kind of a way in which the two things link together. That that sort of being. Um, you know, actively involved, um, you know, thinking about, reflecting on, considering, um, you know, both what you do professionally, um, but also the, you know, the, the wider world that we're, we're, we're part of and, the, you know, the amazing things in it, the amazing people that you that you meet in it and the, the way of kind of tying those those two things together, which I think links in with that sense of, you know, libraries being a very special place to work, um, you know, a, a place where, you can genuinely make a difference to people's lives. You can you can do things that have real impact and real real value for people. And I, I think that's part of, um, to me, part of what you know that, that sense of being intellectually engaged is is about is not not forgetting you know what why are we doing this stuff? Um, you know why why are we you know it's not it's not just something to to pay the bills. There's there's more to it than than that. And the fact that there's more to it than that is, um, is is. Is, is fulfilling and is, is is motivating and is um you know hopefully for people is is really really interesting so um i guess there's almost a there's kind of a sense in this of um perhaps not trying to separate your professional life and your personal life too much uh, i mean not not that not that we shouldn't be conscious of, of work-life balance and all of all of those kind of things but that that sense that they're um, it, it doesn't always need to be this kind of duality between the two of, of you know, being a totally different person and thinking about things in a totally different way um, professionally to, to the way that you, you know, you might do in other, other parts of your life. And for, you know, the, the kind of the, you know, the intellectual interest and wonder that you might get from reading a book or watching a documentary outside of work. Um, you know, is there a way of kind of bringing that sense of, 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 of wonder and engagement into how you work professionally? And, always aware of the you know the risk of not doing that you know for for, for myself personally and and I I think that's that's when I'd have to start to worry when I'm you know not really that interested in what I'm doing at work and I'm I'm just kind of going through the motions and coasting along that that for me is kind of when the alarm bells would ring when I'd, I'd really have to think look you know why am I doing this and um you know for, fortunate to say that hasn't happened um for, for me personally and I'm, I'm still um you know hugely fortunate and um you know absolutely fascinated and i'm really grateful um by the you know the kind of sector i'm I'm able to work in and the the kind of stuff i'm able to do well it's interesting too because you think about you know being the the person at the desk just doing the job versus having the passion and being able to see the forest through the trees and so many people in in the profession don't they just punch that clock they sit at the reference desk, they do they do their ordering, they do their weeding, and they go on with their day. And not that there's anything wrong with that, because some people, that's their skill set, and that's what they do. But sometimes you, you need to have passion. And if that passion means weeding a collection, or doing collection development, or working a reference desk, helping patrons, doing that kind of thing, as long as you're passionate about that, I think, and you have more people that are passionate versus just, you know, having a countdown clock on their desk to when they retire. You know, I think that makes a big difference in the service that they provide in the building. And it rubs off as much as the negative culture rubs off. And I think that if you're a manager and you exude that forest through the trees um, mentality, it does trickle down. It really, it really does as much as a manager who's negative and nasty and mean, although it seems as though 
you know, that kind of uh, mindset travels faster than the than the positive mindset, but it does still work. Definitely, definitely. I think what's um, what's really important in so much of this is, um, you know, just just remembering and, and having um, having an appreciation of the impact that we can we can have for people in what might seem um, very small ways sometimes, um, but that that way that you know in a in a public library that you can um, you know you you might be um, the person who recommends that book to that child that sparks a love of reading that goes on to, um, you know, to be the catalyst for them doing something amazing or totally transforming their life. And in a, you know, similar way, if you work in a college or university library, you know, that way that you, um, you know, you might do one, one small thing that actually has such an impact for, um, you know, somebody's success as a student and, and the things that they're able to, to then go on to, on to do. Um, you know, I think it, kind of shows how powerful we can we can be when we're you know when, when we're doing great things and the the way in which i i always think of libraries as having people at the heart rather than books at the heart but you know yes we've you know yes we've got buildings and yes they have books in them and they're, they're both really important but at the heart of it it's about people um rather than books or rather than just books and um you know that that to me is it's kind of very much linked up with the whole um intellectual engagement piece is the you know the the link with people and the impact that we can have with, you know, with our patrons and you know, and everybody that we work with. That's a great point, Tom. I mean, you know what? <clears throat> what I think when it starts to fall down the slippery slope is when you you forget that it's about the people and it becomes about the process. And you know, you see folks that are that have maybe answered the phone too long at the at at certain desks or or have just maybe uh, lost the passion and the purpose that they that they started their career. Um, at, at libraries, you know, I, I mean, I've I've seen it um, in all the spots that I've that I've spent some time in my career where um, it'll it will affect the way they answer the phone, the way they talk to somebody that's in front of them at the desk, and it's just um, you know they're not even aware of it because they've just been they've been doing it for thirty years or or ten years or maybe they're not built to sit the desk and we need to look for a back office position where they would where they would do more more good, you know. And kind of re reengineer and reboot their their position in the library, and that's what makes a good manager. I think is, you know, if they hate answering the phone at the service desk, maybe they have a talent that they can do <clears throat> that would be more beneficial to the library. Uh, you know, in the back office or or doing something else. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. You you find you find the strong suit, find what they do that that's that they can be good at and have passion about, and you you, you play on those skills. So. What Bob and I do at work fits nicely into the subject area for being outward-looking and proactive. For me, it looks like the Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie poster. Yes, I am dating myself, um, You know, where it's the road meeting the horizon. Um, so how does this concept help with a person's inner morale and enthusiasm? I think there's um, there's probably a lot that links up again with the you know the idea of of people being at the heart of libraries um, rather than books or rather than, than than just books and I think that um, that connection with people um, you know with our colleagues and our and our patrons um, I think is right at the heart of things and is 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 really really important and um, you know part part of it for me in, in in terms of you know that that section of the of the article um, is kind of how good we are at, um, you know, at, at communicating, um, you know, often how good we are at networking, um, how good we are at bringing people together. Um, uh, you know, if you think of the the way that libraries have um, reinvented themselves over the, you know, the past 20, 25 years, you know, particularly given the impact of the internet and the, and the way that libraries are so often hubs and meeting places, um, you know, with, with people right at the, at the heart of them. Um, and you know, what, one thing that we talk about at, at Lancaster quite a lot is this this kind of idea of us being connected. So, as a as a library, we we don't want to be this kind of entity that sits over there that you know you only go to if you want a book. Um, you know that you know we uh, we want to get out there. Um, you know, we want to build relationships with people to you know develop networks. Um, you know, reaching out beyond the library building, right across the campus and and, and beyond. Um, but also the idea of being connectors as well. So um, the way that, you know, because, you know, probably in some ways it's, uh, you know, another uh, you know, sort of great secret of the, of the world is the, the way that librarians can be great networkers. Um, you know, librarians all, you know, they, 
they always know other people. Um, you know, they always know, um, you know, who you should go to speak to. Um, and, and the way that we're kind of good at bringing the right people together, um, knowing who to, you know, even if it's not something that we can take the lead on, we can kind of be the incubator or the, you know, the Petri dish, if you, if you like, where, you know, we can bring the right people together to, you know, get the right combination and to, to make some, some great things happen. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, there's, there's a lot for me that's, that's kind of really tied up with, with people being very much at the heart of things. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. I mean, having you know the ability to, to see that person's inner morale and enthusiasm and, and being able to play on that, um, you know, really, it really makes a lot of sense. Because how else, if you can't do that, then how are you going to motivate people to do something? And how are you going to keep them looking forward instead of looking down? I always use it as the comparison. When you're driving a car, you don't look at the end of yeah. the you know, the front of your car. You're always looking into the distance because you have to anticipate what's happening to the left, to the right, in front of you. And if you have employees that are just looking down all the time, you know where where were you where are you going? How are you driving this ship? And it, you know it, you have to keep looking forward, whether it's technology or whether it's simple library management. So, Tom, inspiration sounds cliche, but there are always people who we come into contact with who wish we would we could be more like. Right now, it's I wish I could be more like Chris. Um, <laughs> but how can, how can we take what those inspirational people do and make it part of our own personal work ethic? I think a, a really important part of it, I think, is to try to unpack and, and understand w- what it is that you find inspiring about someone. So, um, I mean, I, I I meet a huge amount of people who I find personally inspiring. I think if you if you just kind of sit back and think, oh, they're a great person, I you know, I wish I was like them, then you kind of run the risk that the imposter syndrome kicks in, and then you kind of think, ah, oh, but I'm not like them, am I? I'm not as good as them, and oh, I'll never be as good as them, and it kind of, you know, being inspired by somebody then becomes this kind of negative force. So I, I think that, you know, trying to break it down to, well, what, what is it about this person that I really like and admire um, to, uh, you know, to try to tease out, if it's possible, um, something that's actionable, something that you can you can actually do. So something that I do, you know, quite a lot, I've, I've been fortunate to work with some, um, you know, some, some great managers over the years, and I've had some, some great managers in, in many of my roles. And what I do quite regularly, if, you know, if I'm faced with a difficult conversation or a, you know, what could be a challenging meeting, um, some, something like that, is to to think, well, how would they approach this? Um, you know, how would how would they have framed a question? What kind of mindset might they have had? Um, what kind of body language might they have used? And to kind of use that as a, a way then of, of of steering how I, I approach things. Um, so I, I think that's the key thing to me is um, not just to be uh, you know inspired by uh, you know people you people you meet as, as as great as that is, but try to unpack it, try to see well what's you know what is it specifically about them that that, that is inspiring, um, and what can I take away from that that is a you know a piece of kind of actionable reflection that that I can then you know I can do something with that that, that is you know is meaningful for me and is is positive for me. You know, it's interesting as you're talking about this, and as I was reading the article, there was this one thing. There was a person who I'm not going to name, um, but let's just say every time we mention her name, we get paid ten dollars. <laughs> it's a big running joke here on the podcast. Uh, we had a conversation once, and there's a, a certain vernacular here in, in New York, and it may be true in other places too, where when something, when you've completed a transaction, or you know, it's like an acknowledgement, you say no problem. But when you say no problem it implies there was or could have been a problem. So I tried to eliminate that phraseology from at least helping patrons, and I turned it into my pleasure or your welcome, where it's more of a positive kind of conclusion to what you're doing as opposed to assuming with that verbiage, even though it's just it just rolls off your tongue. It's, you know, it's just one of those things that we say. In terms of having that formal voice at work, she had said to me, you never want to have a negative connotation. And I noticed that transitioning from no problem to my pleasure actually changed how I approach patrons and how my interactions are with them. So instead of it being where Chris of 15 years ago would be an adversarial almost um, interaction with a patron because you don't know what's going to happen and you're always assuming the worst. It's to a point now where you just changing that one bit of phraseology changes it can change your whole mindset. And I got that from, we'll say your name, Ellen Druda, um, who, you know, is a bit of a mentor for me. And I know, Bob, you feel the same way. And she just in that one conversation that we had seven, eight years ago, 
it really, just in terms of changing one phrase, one phrase is a, something that's an informal thing that you don't really realize even subliminally when you say no problem, does somebody walk away saying, was, was there a problem? As opposed to yeah, my or, pleasure. Wow, this guy really likes his job. Yeah, or was it a problem to serve me or something like that? And, you know, I think you're right, Chris. It's a good point that Ellen brought up. Uh, it, it's a negative on both sides. So it's a negative to the person saying it and negative to the one receiving it too. So, you know, who else does that? Chick-fil-A does that. They say my pleasure. So you can't possibly fight with that if you're online for 20 minutes. You know, I, I read an article that they wrote about it in the commercial setting um, for fast food and serving patrons during the pandemic and the whole thing that they had to, to change the way they did business. And by adding my pleasure, which they've been doing forever, it's always leaving the customer on a positive uh, and, and not a negative, even if they had a negative experience. You know, when you say my pleasure, how can you fight with that? You know, you waited 20 minutes. Or maybe your sandwich was cold, but they said my pleasure and they gave you whatever, you know, they went above and beyond to serve you more. I love that when patrons come into a library and they're upset and you say something like my pleasure or no worries, which is a big California statement, right? And you leave them with such a positive, they couldn't possibly, even if they were irate when they came in. I remember one specific thing, somebody came in and was very irate. They had a small child with them and there was a $2 replacement card fine. And they were, the kid was like screaming, running around the circulation area. And this, and this lady was trying to handle it the best she could, but staff was really pushing back about the $2, $2, $2. And it was becoming a, a big issue. Uh, so what was the immediate way to take care of that? I took $2 out of my wallet and I gave it to my own circulation staff and said, you know, now the problem's not a problem and no worries, ma'am. Our pleasure, of course, have a great day. And that led up to, doing away with um, replacement card fines. So now we don't charge replacement card fines because it was it was ridiculous what people had to go through for, for a couple of dollars. What does it amount to at the end of the year for a plastic card I can print? You know, that what does it cost us? What is it, what's the real you know, number, the hard number that it cost me to print that plastic card versus the issues that you can, uh, you know, have these people jump through. So. And it changes your work ethic. Yeah. And it did, you know, some people were a little upset, but Look, we serve the patrons. We serve at the pleasure of the patron, right? Correct. Exactly. And not, and not everybody in our profession understands that either. To a certain degree, it is a civil service thing where it's not my job. And, you know, again, dirty words in, in this field, not my job. This is the way we've always done it. Things like that. They just don't fly anymore. Because if that's the way we've always done it, it's been a thing, then I wouldn't be in the profession. It would be women with buns and pearls and shushing people and all those horrible things. say no negative. all day. Yeah, and say no all day. So. Yeah. So it makes sense. So there's so many other great concepts in this article that we can't cover all in the time that we have today with you. But one that I thought was especially interesting was addressing the formal versus the informal power structure of a library or any organization for that matter. The formal power dynamics of superiors and subordinates, but having the informal structure of friendships overlaying that has a big influence on leadership. It's kind of like whispering in the ear of someone who has more power than you because you're friends with them on the side with that informal power structure. That's kind of like how you can influence people. And I'm not saying you should have like an influence because, you know, hey, I'm friends with them. I can get them to do whatever I want to. But there's this concept of the formal structure and the informal structure. And a lot of times the informal structure will affect what happens in the formal structure. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think I think that's very, very true. And I, I you know, I agree entirely with with everything that you've you've just said there and i think the recognizing and understanding that that you know that informal structure the informal dynamics is is, is so important that uh, you know i've i've known people just go through the kind of formal channels and and, and just not either not care or not recognize um you know all of the, everything else that sits around it the whole you know the importance of relationships and you know building and maintaining those relationships and, and connections with with people um, you know, the importance of, um, you know, kind of warming people up to things that, uh, you know, a new idea or proposal that they, they may not have encountered yet. And particularly the way that you'd, you'd never want to just, you know, take that to a committee and expect people to support it. And it's the first they've heard of it. You know, there's all of the hard work comes before that. And, you know, it's, it's almost a bit like once you get to that stage, it should just be a, you know, effectively a rubber stamping everybody, uh, you know, got everybody on side. They're all, they're all in agreement. So, I think all of that informal stuff is um, it's so important. And it's, I think also just kind of looking at it right across the staff as well. Um, you know, thinking about 
you know, not not just senior members of staff who who appear to be powerful um, or appear to be influential, but um, you know, people in every type of role, uh, you know, even even very junior roles, you know, kind of thinking about well, what you know, what kind of value do they do they bring? I mean, I can I can think of a, a colleague in my team, for instance, who. Um, you know, she does one of the more junior roles in the in the team, but she's very influential in terms of the the kind of well being and morale of the of the library. Um, she's you might almost say she's kind of the barometer of um, or the, the sort of temperature gauge of how the library staff are, are feeling. But you know, if she's um, feeling happy and content about things, probably that's going to be the case for for a lot of library staff. So it's. So little things like that and, and kind of understanding those that I think are, are, are really are really important, you know, either not recognising or ignoring um, or, or, you know, you know, kind of dismissing those kind of things as not important, I think, is a, is a real mistake. I think those far more, in, you know, there's this far more sort of informal uh, networks and relationships, are, I think, are, are actually really powerful and, and really, really important. Absolutely. And that's, look, the negative flow of information through that informal network is probably what's more recognized. Jane, who works in circulation, and she's the one that puts the books away, and she's kind of like the unofficial leader of the clerks and the pages, and they listen to her, even though in, in terms of the formal power structure, she's probably one one of the, the bottom most roles. Um, but yet she wields a whole bunch of power because she's been there 30 years, and everybody listens to her. Th- there's this term in psychology called validation. So even if you have a patron or a staff member who's angry, you validate that emotion. You validate what they're saying before you tell them they're wrong, or maybe that's not the way things are supposed to be. But validation is a great way to deflect and disarm, putting the pin back in the grenade as it were. That's a de-escalation method, right? Exactly. And and it's it's, it's more than, it is a de-escalation method, but it's also a valid psychological way to make somebody feel better. And if you can engage with people in the informal structure that way, especially if they're unhappy. And then you start spreading the word through that informal structure that, hey, you know what? We hear that Jane is really unhappy. You know what You know what I heard? Chris is going to do this. And then you start that informal, almost rumor mill, and you make it like a probiotic as opposed to, you know, a virus to be a little hokey with the whole COVID thing. But, you know, that informal structure where maybe some two people started as clerks together and one of those clerks ended up making it all the way to assistant director or a director, but yet she still talks to that clerk who didn't change her role. Now that person maybe has the ear of the person that's now in power. And so there's like a power thing going back and forth. They're both positive and negative. So it really is interesting how that informal structure has such a huge influence on the formal command structure, as it were, like being in, in the military of how things get decided. Because sometimes they'll say, Hey, you know, I've been in the back office for a while. Can you tell me what's happening out here? What is working? What isn't working? And just having those discussions and taking off your your manager hat or your supervisor hat and sitting as people and talking as people saying, if you could change anything, what would you want to change? That I think is huge. And that's part of that informal structure that I think gets lost a lot in organizations and not just libraries. So we've covered a lot of ground and we could sit and talk for hours about this stuff. But unfortunately, we have a limited amount of time. We want to thank you for taking time out of your now evening for you, time to speak with us. So when we come back, we're going to be asking Thomas our top 10 library questions or what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for a top 10 list. And we're always giving thanks to Melanie Cardone from Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions we ask all our guests. So we'll be right back. And we're back with Thomas Shaw, Associate Director, Digital Innovation and Research Services at Lancaster University, Lancashire, England, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for library news that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com, and they do a great job of educating and informing library professionals on topics from all over the world. Thank you once again, Literary Hub. Okay, so you're ready to uh, tackle this list? Sure, sure. Let's go. Okay. Question number one: What did you want to be when you were a child? 
probably um, I remember wanting to be an academic or a, a professor. Um, you know, once I was, you know, kind of started off in the early days. Um, I remember wanting to be a, a, a footballer, a soccer player, which was, uh, you know, that, that was never going to happen. But um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, for a while I wanted to be a, you know, a professor, an academic. What is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? So my, my first memory of the library is um, my mum taking me to the local public library, uh, which was Fishponds Library in, in Bristol, in my, my hometown where I, I grew up. So, you know, remember that from a, a very young age. And then also um, as I, I started to get you know, a little bit older um, around sort of high school time, um, a friend and I used to go and borrow um, Stephen King novels and sci-fi novels and that, that kind of thing. So that was that was my introduction to the, the whole the whole world of libraries. So when did you decide to work in a library and what was your first career path? Because many of us in this profession, librarianship is a second career path. So I um, I went into, into libraries straight after university um, as kind of a first career path. I mean, I'd, I, I was still kind of interested in, in the idea of being an academic, but, you know, for, for a number of reasons, kind of didn't do anything with it. And this was initially a way of, um, well, I still get to, you know, I still get to work at a university, but then kind of discovered that it was a, a really special thing, um, you know, in and of itself. Um, you know, if if I hadn't done that, something that I was considering the early years was was an IT career. So uh, I think that's probably the, the other route is I'd have, um, I'd have ended up working in IT in, uh, in some form. But I've kind I'm of, be real happy that you didn't come to IT <laughs> all the way, although you have a lot to do with IT right now. So. I guess, I, yeah, I've, I've kind of combined the two, which is, um, which is nice. That's the best of both worlds because you get a reprieve from the day-to-day hardware craziness. Uh, so, Tom, who, who was your favorite fictional librarian? This is a bit of a tough one because um, I, I, I kind of tend to find most, most of the fictional librarians for me kind of they kind of fall into some of the stereotypes of librarians that are, um, you know, a little bit negative sometimes. There's, there's an episode of Seinfeld that comes to mind where there's, a, I think, there's a library cop or something, and you know, he, Mr. He's a, funny, he's a funny character, but I don't know that he's somebody I'd want to emulate particularly. But um, I think if if I have to go with somebody, I'd uh, I'd go with the library cop. I think. Oh, well, Mr. Bookman. I that's think that's great. a first for us, isn't yes. it? Yeah. It is a first. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Bookman. I like that. What a great character he was, too. Oh, yeah. So what would you be doing if you weren't working in a library? Probably IT, right? Probably IT, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, IT or some, something connected either with IT or universities, I think, most likely. What would you say is your favorite section of the library? I'd say in, anywhere where, um, either where the people are, um, you know, where there are, Lots of patrons, um, lots going on, lo- loads of activity, or, or wherever, you know, wherever something new is happening, um, you know, wherever there was a, you know, a new innovative development, a new service, a new collection, um, you know, what, what, whatever it might be, um, I think they're the, they're the kind of things that would um, would draw me in. So, if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? I think it would be. Um, something that some kind of technological solution that as you, as you can probably tell i haven't really figured this one out yet but something that truly blends the physical collection and the digital collection together and allows people to kind of explore them in a seamless way so we've talked a lot in recent years about ways in which augmented reality may be able to help people to see a physical collection and a digital collection together so some new, cool, interesting kind of way of, of doing something like that with technology. You know, if, if I had the budget and could, uh, you know, pay for lots of technology and hire lots of people in to, to do all the work, it would be it would be something to, to, to do that in a really exciting way. What would you say it is that you love about libraries? I think, I mean, there's a, a huge, huge number of things that I, I love. And, um, you know, I think particularly the way, the way that they're hubs that bring people together and the power that they have to, to change people's lives. Um, the way that they can provide people with with a home, with a sense of place, with a with a sense of, of belonging, and then also the way in which you know every type of library has has reinvented itself, um, you know, over the past 20, 25 years, and particularly given the impact of of the internet. Um, when I first started in libraries, people were you know kind of talking a lot about you know will the internet be the death of the library or you know, will the library building at least disappear? And now, you know, certainly where I work, the library building is, um, 
you know, it's it's a component of a, a very broad array of, of different activities and different services, but it's a really, really important component and it's better used than it's ever been. So I think it's just kind of testament to the way that we've we've completely rethought and reinvented and, and reframed what a library is and what a what a library is all about. So um uh, yeah, no, no huge huge amount to, to be inspired by and to love about working in this area. Put it on the list of all the different things that were supposed to kill libraries. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the weirdest, not necessarily worst thing, but weirdest thing that you has happened to you in your library career that you've seen in your library career? I think when I first started out and I, I used to work with, um, you know, patrons face to face. I had a you know kind of frontline face to face role um, working with students. And, um, you know, I was uh, I was in my early 20s at the time. So, um, you know, I quite regularly be going, you know, going out for nights out and, you know, quite regularly um, would uh, you know, students would see me and would recognize me as, ah, it's the, it's the guy who works in the library and would, would say hello. And I, uh, I have a, a weird memory of, um, I'd gone to a, I'd gone to a techno club and, uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning and, uh, um, I was there with some friends and having, you know, all having a great time. And, uh, a guy approached me, um, and, and said, I recognize you, you work for the library, don't you? And we, we kind of ended up about, about two in the morning with this, uh, techno soundtrack in the background, having a, quite an interesting conversation about libraries which was um i mean there, there were probably weirder things that have happened but it was it was a bit weird it wasn't wasn't quite what i was expecting that's pretty funny that is some setting too yeah some setting for a question like that you never know how they're going to respond when they say hey you you're from the library right like uh, oh yeah, maybe yeah my brother my twin my brother twin was brother. he mean to you i yeah, used that i used that a couple of times oh oh you mean my brother yeah i have a twin <laughs> <laughs> So do you or did you have a favorite regular patron? Maybe for you it would be a student. I would say um, some of my favorite patrons were um, back, back when I did more, more sort of frontline roles. Um, a lot of the mature students were, you know, they were really inspirational people, um, you know, great people to meet, really, you know, really great perspective on things. So um, they were some of my, my favourite patrons. Um, if I had to pick one in my, my first job, uh, we used to have a, um, a, prof- a history professor um, at uh, University of Bristol who would regularly come in. Um, professor Ronald Hutton, who has um, he's done a lot of work on on TV in the in the UK, um, quite a lot of work with the BBC, and he's he's a great character, um, really really fascinating, um, and and was uh, you know a lovely guy when he used to come into the library. So um, if I had to pick one favourite patron, I think it would uh, it would probably be him. Okay, our final question: What are people without library cards missing out on? Um. Probably pretty much everything, I think. Um, so I think that, you know, they're missing out on um, ways of understanding the world, ways of connecting with others, um, ways of being able to get involved in things and, you know, kind of be able to, to take control of their, their lives. I think there's, there's just so much that libraries can offer. And um, I think to, to, you know, to not have that library card or not engage with um, with what your, your library offers you, whether it's a public library or a college library or, or wherever the, the library might be. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a, there's just a world of stuff that you, you miss out on. So do we have some plugs other than the article, which is how to strive for success, happiness, fulfillment, and impact a personal manifesto. It's on um, insights.uksg.org. So anything else you want to plug university website or any cool things you're doing? Um, there's just, just a couple of things. So um, I mentioned uh, Lancaster Digital Collections earlier on our our new um, our new uh, digital library um, for images. So um, that is digitalcollections.lancaster.ac.uk. Um, we're we're adding new collections to that all the time. So uh, you know, take a look and um, there's some there's some really interesting stuff on there and. Um, just a um, you know, final couple of words of, of thanks. Uh, uh, just a, a huge thank you to all of my colleagues um, at the library at, uh, at Lancaster University. Uh, you know, great bunch of people to work with, a great team uh, I work with, and uh, a huge thank you to all of them. And then finally, a thank you to to UKSG as well for for publishing the article. And um, you know, I'm you know, I, I, I remain absolutely bowled over at the you know the the, the 
engagement that it's had, the way it's connected with people, uh, which is far beyond what I was imagining and has, has been absolutely fantastic. Well, it's a great article and it deserves all the publicity you can give it because it really is fascinating and, and it really does, it, it really strikes a chord. So thank you for writing it's, it because yeah, it's so it, timely too and it resonates so well. Absolutely. So Thomas Shaw, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.